Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host. It's really great to be with you all again. Um, I'm delighted to welcome a new guest on the show, uh, Jayla Damaris. She is a musician and she's also the producer of, a co-producer of a movie on Exvangelicals, which is being created at the moment. And um, she's got a very powerful story, which she's going to share with us today. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, James, for having me on. You're welcome. It's really great to have you here. Um, yeah, so as you say, you've got a very powerful story because you're um, you're part of this group called the Exvangelicals, which is basically people who've left the evangelical movement. Um, I guess I could call myself one of those people actually, um, as well. But um, so, but you've got a very powerful like testimony kind of story that experience that you've had, and. Um, I know you've shared it elsewhere and it's been really inspirational, so I really wanted you to share it here. So um, tell us a bit about your story and the background to the story. For sure. Um, I was raised in a very um, conservative home. It was homeschooling home, quiverful home. I'm the oldest of seven kids. Uh, Very traditional gender roles, what we would call complementarian home with strong male headship. Um, and, uh, it was a Calvinist home. So an independent, we went to independent fundamental Baptist church churches when I was originally born. I'm the oldest. My parents were, um, in an evangelical denomination, but as we progressed and as my dad became, um, having a stronger belief in complementarianism, uh, we switched towards an independent fundamental Baptist uh, belief system. So, um, you know, we had all sorts of isolation from being homeschooled. Um, we started getting involved with a homeschool movement called the Advanced Training Institute, which was led, ATI uh, is the acronym, and it was led by Bill Gothard. Um, and uh, we also were, um, so I guess there's a little bit of a trigger here. Uh, it was severely and a, and a severely violent and domestic abusive home. And so mm-hmm. my dad would use verses from Proverbs, verses from Deuteronomy to justify this and to say, you know, my wife is my slave, my wife is my property. Um, look here in Leviticus, look here in Deuteronomy. I'm allowed to do these things, supposed to do these things. God wants me to do these things. Um, and same with Proverbs, um, saying, you know, I'm supposed to beat the folly out of my kids. Um, and so we're just, just really raised in this very, very strict biblical um, home that, uh, but it still, it still made me want to love God. I became a Christian. I, I prayed this traumatic prayer when I was nine years old. Um, it was, it was terrifying for me that some terrible things had happened leading up to when I was nine. And I just decided, like, I really needed to ask Jesus to be in my heart. And I prayed with my parents, but it was it was very traumatic. My dad basically was saying, you know, I haven't confessed enough sin. I haven't confessed enough sin. Mm. And so I remember praying, like, making up things just to appease my dad. <laughs> but quietly praying in my heart, I'm sorry, God, for lying. I'm sorry, God, for lying. You don't need, I don't really do these things. But my dad wanted me to make myself be 
more evil than I really was. And it was oh. all of that shame. Um, it was all of that sadistic authoritarianism that, that he was going to show that he was holy and that his daughter um, was this, this wretch of a human being that didn't even deserve to be alive. And when I was 14, I really uh, was struggling with being suicidal and everything um, from growing up in that home. But I really had this change of heart um, where, you know how Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, but mm. I became like an adult. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really when I just decided I was going to um, have this faith of mine that was going to be purely between me and God. Mm. And I wasn't going to let my family decide what was right or what was wrong. So I told, you know, I told my brother, I was like, I don't believe the Bible when the Bible says this. And he was aghast. But I think, like, we didn't have words like deconstructed back then. You know, we didn't have words like evangelical back then. Um, I didn't know about different denominations that were inclusive to the members of the LGBTQIA community. I didn't know that there were churches and Protestant churches that really believed in the equality of women. Um... So that's a little bit of my upbringing. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's like a whole story in itself, I think. <laughs> um, wow. Goodness me. Sounds very traumatic. Um, yeah. I mean, I grew up in kind of the Methodist church and then kind of the charismatic movement myself. and then, But my parents weren't quite as fundamentalist as that. Um, that's, yeah. So, I mean, where did this kind of lead you then in terms of what you did next and what happened to you? Mm -hmm. I really, in my teen years, I really had this, um, pull between obeying God and doing what I thought God wanted and seeing Mm -hmm. this, um, abusive, controlling, authoritarian, criminal way that we were being raised. And so while I tried to stand up for my mom, I, you know, there'd be times during family devotions, we would have hours and hours where we would have to memorize the book of Proverbs or the book of Romans. Um, you know, my dad forced us to fast when we were kids, or at least me and my brother. Um, and I would, I would kind of start crying sometimes when we were reading the Bible and say to my mom, you know, mom, I don't know how you can, um, being married to such an abusive husband, you're so strong. And I'll kind of stand up to my dad in different ways. But at the same time, you know, my parents would tell me, well, you're a rebel, you're a rebel. You know, you're a most difficult child. And so I would feel guilty um, in my walk with God when I was praying and when I was journaling and when I was reading the scriptures to myself. Like, okay, uh, you know, oh dear, I don't want to be considered this disobedient, rebellious child. But I feel these problems. So when I was, um, there, there were lots of different things that happened um, in my teen years. We moved around a lot. Um, my dad always told me that I was an adulterous woman. I was very athletic. And 
I've been told I was pretty, and so he would always tell me I'm not allowed to have friends, not allowed to talk to boys, um, not allowed to wear clothes that fit you, it has to be really baggy. Um, but I ended up starting to court someone who was from API. He was from the same homeschooling cult. And I found out um, we had a really traumatic relationship. There were a lot of things that I wanted to know about him. And he didn't really want to tell me. He just wanted to and just get married and kind of be done with it. And I was like, but I want to know, uh, what do you believe about this theology? And I was like, he didn't really want me going to college and he had a grade eight education, but I was in college in my first year at the time. Mm. And so there was all those things that really came up while we were courting. And I was just like, I'm not really sure. And I found out that he was also seeing someone else at this time. And so I broke up with him. And uh, in our API, you know, very complimentary and very misogynistic, patriarchal, um, the, the way that we grew up was also in a cult, uh, was that you're not supposed to do that. That is uh, very, very adulterous. That as soon as you start dating someone, you must marry that person because you, even if you've never been alone in the same room, you are giving your heart and your soul to that person. So my dad, I was 20 years old at the time, my dad severely beat me, called me a slut, kicked me out of the house. He's like, you're bad for my reputation, you're gone. So it started me when I moved, I, we were living in the U.S. at the time, I moved back to Canada. It started me on this um, five years where I didn't go to church. And I was just, I don't really deal with the theology. I don't really, I was deconstructed to the sense of, I didn't place this guilt on myself that I had to go to church or I had to pray. Um, but what it did, it was just, it just kind of, kind of sat there, kind of festering. Mm. So, um, so up until my, you know, early twenties, I really realized that I needed to, um, to just let all of that cultish, patriarchal, really authoritarian kind of false religion, um, uh, beliefs work out of me. But I still believe, you know, there are these miraculous things that had happened to me growing up. So there's these prayers that I would pray or God would answer prayers or God would text me when I was driving or I'd lose my contacts, you know, and I'd pray, God help me find my contacts and I'd find my contacts. <laughs> um, and there was also ways that I saw that he really gave me that hope and really gave me that will to live when I was suicidal and I didn't have access medication. I didn't have access to school counselors. Um, I didn't have access to healthy pastors or healthy adults in my life to reach out to them when I was um, really feeling like my life would be better if it would end. So I mm. attribute this, um, a lot of things to my faith, and I didn't really know where to take it. Mm. When I was 25, I um, had a traumatic breakup with a boyfriend that I really loved. And I really started to feel that I have to go back to church. I have to deal with these things. Um, I do truly still believe in God. And um, I was able to go to this incredible evangelical church. And mm. they actually taught there a lot of theological things that had been missing from my past. So they dealt with uh, humanitarian issues. I am an empath. I realized from a very young age that I have a gift of encouragement and affirmation, and I didn't really have a channel 
in which to do them in our very authoritarian black and white culture growing up. So finally, I was able to be affirmed in who I was. Mm. Um, I got really good teaching about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So growing up in this Calvinistic upbringing, there's so much emphasis put on the King James Version and God the Father, you know, God mm. the Creator. Mm. Whereas in this evangelical church, I um, got to experience the Bible in a different way. I got to learn, um, uh, see how community functioned without being super, super judgmental. There was still some judgment in my, in my generation. But in the generations above me, uh, the baby boomers, even some of the gen betters, I just experienced a lot of love, a lot of acceptance. Um, no one was telling me I was adulterous for existing. Um, no one was telling me I had to wear a size 14 when I'm a size 6. <laughs> <laughs> no one was there was rock music on the stage. You know, people wear pants. There were couples there that weren't married. Um, so it really was, for that time in my life, it was really healthy. And I'm very grateful for that church. Mm. That sounds really... It's strange because when you were talking, I a lot of this sounds really familiar to a lot of my story and my background because I went through the same stages because um, I had a deconstruction out of conservative evangelicalism and then into liberal evangelicalism like about 13 years ago and it was like the same kind of the same kind of jump um, that you just that you just talked about you know it was kind of much more social justice stuff and much more like you know people were there who were who weren't coupled were there who weren't married that kind you know and the kind of music and the kind of atmosphere that it, it you know it's it sounds like a very similar kind of journey but um so what kind of what was what was happening with you kind of theologically at this point what was kind of like how are your beliefs changing like, or was it just that you found a place where people believed that as you were, as you already believed, or was it a, like a combination of, of both? You know, I think that my theology actually really did change at the time. I've I really haven't been involved in church for the past couple of years, so um, really some specific examples are really failing me. I know definitely. Um, the Trinity really was framed for me at the time. It really provided so much clarity. I think our pastor um, had done a series uh, that was an eight-week. No, it must have been longer than that because I think we spent several weeks on God the Father, several weeks on God the Son, on Jesus, and then several weeks on God the Holy Spirit. And growing up Calvinist, we never, ever talked about the Holy Spirit. Um other than just to say there's a trinity and there's a spirit and we don't ever want to talk about the spirit because heaven forbid we should be like those Pentecostals <laughs> um, or those you know charismatics that are um, you know a little bit out there or a lot out there so um, it really helped me understand maybe uh, what was happening inside of me that I had um maybe access to grace or access to supernatural power instead of this lofty God being out there in heaven mm. that I would pray. Um, 
and we would always say, you know, even in Calvinism and growing up independent fundamental Baptist, we would always say it's not a works-based religion it's not because that would go against the theology. But truly it is. I mean, truly what, what denominations and what part of, of so much religious culture isn't working your way to heaven or hmm. trying to be better for other Christians or trying to be better for God? Yeah, that's right. There's so much of an element of, like, how you behave or what you do has an impact on what happens later, you know, or what you don't do, <laughs> or right. or what language you use, or, like, what practices you do. Like, you know, I've been in churches where they said, like, if you practice yoga, you're letting the devil into your life, you know, that kind of stuff, which is just ridiculous um in fact actually i've actually been doing yoga recently and i actually it's actually helped me connect to god more ironically so there you go that, that kind of dispels that myth but yeah it's all kind of about how what you do gets you something else it's like there's a transactional thing isn't there like in that kind of culture another thing that i really um realize speaking about like a transactional relationship or transactional love is that um i started to feel that i was very supportive supported by the church leadership for me to begin leadership so i started playing a worship team and i started playing as a secondary accompanist in their orchestra they're quite a large church mm. so they had an orchestra <laughs> and um and it was very important to me that even though I wasn't teaching out of the Bible or have a spotlight on me or have a microphone on me, that because I was being represented on stage, um, because other people could see me on stage, it was very important to me that I lived this life of um, authenticity and lived a life of, you know, if someone saw me on this on this church stage, that, that if they saw me off of the stage, that it would make sense. And so living a life of um, helping helping other people, helping other women in the church or in the community or younger women or in, in my university, um, offering myself, I had a car given to me for a few months, so I gave it back to God. And I was like, God, you know, you gave me this car, I give it back to you if I can use it to give rides to people. Um, and through that, I was offered a volunteer position as a facilitator of a life group. Mm. Call them Bible study, and how their life group, their small group. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe tell your listeners no Bible study. Yeah, community group, action group, cell group, any of those kind of, those kind of terminology, basically. Yeah, those kind of things. And so I saw that support um, for me, and it it was very difficult for me because I thought, oh, you know, my parents really facilitate or teach or lead this Bible study. But I was very supported by the leadership, and they kind of talked with me about um, their beliefs in the church, about female leadership, and the qualifications of females, and what the what these you know clobber verses that we have in the Bible, Second Timothy two twelve, and verses in Corinthians where Paul says, "I don't permit a woman to teach." So in some ways, that was in in so many ways actually that was such a healthy church for me to be able to keep my faith but have it transition out of a really authoritarian, Calvinistic, abusive faith 
to something that was much more free and healthy. I was I was reading different um, devotionals. I was reading George Meyer's devotional on prayer. Plus, I was reading Oswald Chambers, um, you know, good meaty uh, pastor of the father of the faith. And then I was reading out of sometimes the the messages that would be preached would be preached out of an NIV Bible or they'd be preached out of a message. And I was reading out of an NASB Bible. It wasn't a King James Version anymore. So in so in so many ways it really helped my faith to to grow and blossom. But then there were also things that I really struggled with. I struggled with connecting with my peers. Um, they didn't have they had family. They had healthy family. Really I tried mm. to stay healthy healthy with my family but a lot of ways being kicked out and leaving there's natu- natural estrangements that happen I didn't get married when I was 19 and start having children and homeschooling right away I went to college for music instead of going and becoming a nurse like my family wanted or an engineer um and so I saw the, the things that separated me from my peers in the church um I also uh, I also had a different income from a lot of them they were they were, we live in a really oil and gas rich town and a lot of people had triple the income that I did. And so I really just didn't connect with them because they'd be going on these great outings or, you know, going for sushi or going for movies or going to dance for the weekend. And I couldn't do it. And so there was a natural separation that happened due to being low income as a musician. And um, there was also a lot of things that because I didn't see the world just as living for myself, I saw it as anyone, any time can be going through a traumatic situation. And I was so aware of that, going to church, going to university, going to work, any woman could be um, in an abusive situation, any person could be dealing with thoughts of suicide. And mm. I was, my empath heart was so aware of that all the time. And I, I felt this strong need that um, what I would call now advocacy or heart for justice. I didn't use those words back then, but that was a huge part. And so I think there was a lot of distraction for me when I was in university because part of me was trying to do life the way that I thought everyone else was doing in their 20s. You know, you're supposed to go to university and graduate and then get a job and get a boyfriend and get married and do all of these yeah. um, socially acceptable things. But then there was this, this part of me that's like, my sisters, my sisters are still caught up in this terrible, terrible home and cult, I have have to save them. And even if I can't save them, I have to save other women around me. And so that naturally created a separation too with my peers, this this passion for for justice, calling out authoritarian men. You know, I got accused of of hating men. I don't hate men. It's that I see the problems in patriarchy, or I see mm. the way that men, uh, certain men can contribute to women's lives being destroyed, absolutely mm. destroyed. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. You're, um, yeah, that's right. It's often what happens, I, I find, when we... Because I, I went through a big childhood trauma as well of my own, and then I lost a parent as well, and, you know, when I was quite young. And, of course, that all, that all kind of affects your view of the world you know I was like 23 and I'd lost a parent and I'd been already been through a trauma before that so that all kind of contributed to 
you know how I was in my 20s and like you I felt disconnected from my peers because none of them had been through that you know most of my friends hadn't had their parents divorce and hadn't had gone through what I'd been at home and hadn't lost a parent you know so there was a bit there was a natural disconnection for me as well and that and it did affect my my spiritual journey um and you know I've only really just in the last few years come to terms with it it's um you know it's um so I completely resonate with what you're talking about and you know um and it can push us in ways that maybe we didn't sometimes we didn't want to go um I think I've learned a lot from my experiences and I now feel like I want to help people who've been through what I've been through um just like you you know um but also there were initially there were there were kind of negative behaviors and negative things that I did because I didn't respond to it initially in a in a healthy way and I think we're going to hear in your story what happened with you as well and how that happened with you so I mean, where, where, so what, what kind of what was what was the next thing that what was kind of the next part of your story <laughs> Sure, and let me just say, I'm so sorry for the loss of your parents. I haven't been through that myself. I have been through the loss of a family member, and I really just feel for you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the loss of a family member, in 2015, one of my younger sisters was diagnosed with colon cancer. Right. And oh, no, I'm so sorry. Out, um, she was already at age four. And it was a very, um, it, we didn't, really didn't have a lot of time. So when we found out, it was only a, a matter of months until she was gone. And so what that did was, I'd actually had, I, I really liked my life where I was living in Calgary. I was working as a musician, a piano teacher, a composer. Um, but I really felt strongly that I needed to, I prayed, of course, I prayed about it. God, what do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah. Um, because I still had two younger sisters living at home with my parents, I felt um, I wanted to move to be closer to them. I didn't want to move back home, but I wanted to move to be much closer. And my parents were living in the state of Pennsylvania. And so I moved from Western Canada where I was living, to Eastern Canada. And this is after I, you know, prayed and God had told me, this is the city you should move to and this is the church you should go to. And that's where I was at in my faith. And it was very difficult losing my sister because she was really the glue of the family. And really, she was the one that was the healthiest and the most loving. And um, and it was such a blow and such a loss to our family. But when I when I moved, I, I didn't find a place to live right away. I couldn't find freelance work right away as a musician. Um, the churches that I went to were... <clears throat> very, what I would call now, very backwards. So I started going to a Bible study, and I was told by the Bible study leader, you're not welcome here because you don't come to our Sunday services. And also you decided to not date um, one of the other members uh, from our Bible study, so you can't come here. And so I went up to the higher, the higher level, and this is an evangelical church in Eastern Canada. And um, I said to them, is this your stance? in the church that you are going to kick people out of your Bible studies when someone doesn't date someone else in your church. And they said, well, no, but this is a Bible study leader and he, um, he has the right to say what happens in his 
life group. I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to that church. <laughs> and then I started going to another church that um, people from my church in Calgary had really highly recommended. They, I had lots of different friends in my church in Calgary, and they kind of threw the grapevine and said, oh, you should try this church. You should try this church. And I've got a family member or a friend or a cousin to connect you with. And so I kind of got swept up in this one church. And in some ways, um, I really appreciated some of the things that they did. Cars died, and I would get rides to church, and when people tried to help me, there was a Father's Day. A family took me and had a barbecue at their house. So there were some ways that some people were trying to connect with me. But there were a lot of other things, too, that um, really made me feel this is this. I'm not just struggling with this church. And struggling with church in general. There was so much um, ostracizing me because I I think because I was single, not married, didn't really have kids, but I wasn't divorced. So I couldn't be, you know, stuck into like, you know, the single divorce group. But I also wasn't, you know, 21 anymore where I could be shoved into like the single college and career group. And all the women my age, every single one of them was married with kids. And so I think that the church kind of realized, like, we don't really have a place for her. And so socially, I wasn't able to connect. And theologically, I did enjoy some of the, the, the sermons. But as I was trying to connect in this community, I really realized um, there was a lot of judgment from people. There was a lot of misunderstanding about who I am, my life choices. I remember reaching out for prayer um, at one point and asking, you know, saying, I can't find a job. I can't find a house. I'm, if you can hire me as a janitor at your church, you know, I'll work. Um, but I'm a freelance musician, and so it's just a little bit difficult. It takes a while to establish myself in the community. And so I was praying, and the person praying with me just kind of walked away in, in a big huff because I had started praying, and she didn't kind of just get to pray. And so there are all these little things. And at that time, um, I, I had a friend who realized that I was transitioning from working as a piano teacher and as a piano performer into becoming more of a film composer. And he had worked on one of these incredible Christian movies. And not only had he worked on it, but he was very connected with the filmmakers and with the film festival, Christian festival. So he invited me to come. It was March of 2016. So I went there, I connected with um, some incredible artists and um, met someone who would become my husband and um, really just kind of felt a resurgence of um, faith in myself. But when I came back, um, one of the film composers told me, we had a conversation and I was like, how do I start this career? And we kind of talked about some of the equipment I had and some of my skills. I had gone to university for composing. And the composer said to me, well, Jayla, it sounds like because you have to go into debt to buy equipment to compose, it's not God's will for you to be a film composer. And so I was devastated. But throughout this spring and this summer, I started to see what happened in the U.S. politically with... Um, with that presidential race and what mm. was starting to happen, even in Canada, how it was affected, these divisions that were happening, divisions that were happening on humanitarian levels, 
divisions that were happening on economic levels. And even though I was radically going to church at that time, I really just made the decision that in October 2016, I can't, I can't go back. I don't really have enough in common with the way that people are thinking and the people, the types of people that are supporting um, this person to be president. Hmm. So I really had what we would now call, I guess, a deconstruction, but really it had been, those seeds had already been planted in my life since I was nine years old. Seeing, seeing people um, have a double standard for a, a person in authority or a man, but then they really had a different standard for a woman, a single woman. Um, really, mm. they wanted to say that they were choosing a political person um, based on the abortion issue and saying, you know, we have to stand for life. But really, they're not standing for life because they are not standing for a marginalized person. They're not standing for the life of the mother. They're not standing for the life of the member of the LGBTQIA community. Mm. So they're not standing for the immigrant. So they're not really actually pro-life. They're really just lobbyists for, for one thing. And I, I was recognizing that okay, wow, I saw double standards growing up in the cult I grew up in. I, I saw double standards all the time in indigenous fundamental Baptist belief and in the, the API cult, the homeschooling cult. But now I'm starting to see the double standards in evangelicalism, that there's, um, that really there's a, there's a lot of fundamentalism, even though they have rock music on stage and even though the women are wearing pants and maybe they only have two kids so they're using birth control and they don't have 10 kids like the daughters. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and it also made me realize that um, my, it wasn't just about the church. My prayers that I was praying to God, not just God be my genie, but God help me, God fill my spirit, God comfort me through the death of my sister. God, bring me a companion. Um, God, help me be a companion to myself or be a companion to me when I don't have companions or friendships. He wasn't there. He was completely silent. And so it wasn't just a deconstruction for me from church. It was a deconstruction from God. Um, it was a deconstruction from the Bible. Because I saw that... Um, Really, the Bible was being used, just verses being pulled out of context, um, translations being used to mm. just justify certain things and then condemn other people. And I didn't have enough knowledge. I hadn't gone to Bible school. I hadn't studied Greek. Really didn't know what was truth and what was not. And so it was easiest for me to just say, this is a... a series of books that somehow down through history we have come to accept as an authority but really it's being used to do things that in history we would call incredibly um, authoritarian and controlling and abusive mm. yeah yeah you're right I mean again there's a lot of things that resonate here I yeah, I you go into you go into the new kind of church thinking it's different and and it is different from what you had before, and then over time it kind of starts to you start to see the same patterns emerging and just in different in different ways with different language and you know different visuals, 
but it's still essentially the same. Like, and yeah, and I remember my experience was that I went to the church that I left. I think I went there for probably for two years, and I wasn't, I wasn't really engaging. I couldn't. I was there because my friends were there. That you know, I didn't know that at the time, but I, but that's what it really was, and you know, because my dad went there, and um, you know, he went there because of me. Ironically, it wasn't the other way around. Um, but and I just stayed there because I, I kind of was too scared to leave. But I wasn't getting any. All my, all my spiritual sustenance was coming outside of that, and I was just, and it was totally different to what people there were talking about. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just what they believed. It was how they were believing it. It was this kind of closed, this closed-fisted kind of dualistic kind of um, idea, like not list, not be willing to hear any stories other than your own. You know, as a, as in we're right and you're wrong, and that's the end. Like, and you know, there's no kind of nuance or, you know. Um, I was starting to read a lot of Richard Rohr and you know uh, monastic stuff and you know non non dual thinking and things like that kind of thing um, and that was starting to shape shape me you know not just what I believed but how I believed and it, I was changing like I was effectively losing my religion that's what it was you know I was just you know all that and you know. Um, I was gone before I was gone, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, and I ended up not not really going to a sermon for almost a year because I just couldn't, I wasn't taking anything from it and it was the same old stuff and it was just, it was like, this is not, yeah, this is not feeding me in any way. Um, but I couldn't talk about my beliefs with anybody because not in the church, maybe apart from one person, I think, who was on the same journey I was. Um, you know, and even now I've not really talked about, about it with them. I've not really talked about it anywhere, um, like to the extent of what I actually believe now. But, um, so I, like, yeah, so what you're saying just resonates so much with me. Um, and I think it resonates with a lot of people. I know a lot of people who have been through something similar and I think it's something that more people, more more people are experiencing. Um, yeah. So... So what was what was next kind of for you? What kind of what was the next kind of stage of your journey? Yeah, so um I I was feeling like I needed to leave. Um this I had all these questions, no one was answering um my questions that I had about the Bible, which which verse, which books were truth, which were really authentic, which were parables, which were cultural. Um, really, are the stories in the Bible real? I was starting to hear the Job story wasn't really real, and the Genesis creation story wasn't really real. There's no Adam and Eve, and I was starting to hear just things from being um, getting involved more online, um, where I started to really just recognize that I can't reconcile. Um, I, I can't say the Bible is inerrant or infallible anymore, mm. and I didn't see the presence of God in my life and what I believe God. So God was never a genie to me, but, you know, I would ask him for comfort or I would ask him for 
maybe a prayer being answered, so maybe that was him being a genie. But, you know, I really didn't experience any type of um, presence in my devotional time, in my prayer time, when I was journaling. Everything just seemed very rote. And because I had been raised with this high, you know, workspace salvation, even though no one that I grew up with would ever say that it was a workspace salvation, it truly was. It was so important to me that I didn't do anything that seemed flat or inauthentic or without power or without the spirit there. And I wasn't experiencing any of this. So as I continued on my um, being in Facebook and being in social media, I got involved in these groups. Um, so some Christian feminist groups, some Christian egalitarian groups, and also some Christian resistance groups, so Christians that were saying, you know, we're not Republican, we're not for this certain candidate that stands for these really bigoted, sexist, xenophobic things. Um, so I started to learn about, um, like, Christian justified socialism and started to learn about Christian justified feminism, that people who had political science degrees and social, they were social workers, and people who were professors and people who had PhDs and had gone to seminary, I was observing their teachings and observing their conversations in these Facebook groups. And it was a huge amount of, I hate to use the word deconstruction because that can't really encompass everything, but it wasn't a reconstruction either. It was the sound of light bulbs going off that, oh, this makes sense and this makes sense and I'm a woman and I'm a single woman and I'm a brown single woman but I'm starting to see that these structures, these systematic structures from thousands of years have caused me to be where I'm at at today. And now what do I do with it? Mm -hmm. So um, I built, I forged some incredible friendships, people that are still truly in my life today. Um, people who I've never met from the internet. We do video calls. We have, we know each other's, like I know their kids' names, but they know my birthday and, really these beautiful people that were committed to saying, nope, the Bible has been mistaught this way, or the Bible has, um, there's a misinterpretation here that even though it's been socially acceptable in the church, this is the way that it damages women. This is the way that it damages um, people who are low income and um, all, all different sorts of things. So um, that brought me to going to the Women's March. In January of 2017, I went to New York City and I marched on Trump Tower. It was an incredibly um, moving experience for me. So there's a lot of criticism from that march for for not being intersectional and um, for it just being this big um, program or political protest that really didn't do anything. But I had always volunteered with um, with people that were less privileged than I than I am. I had always tried to, um, I shouldn't say always, but I had really learned from my church in Calgary and a really dear friend of mine to just stop when a homeless person, an unhoused person asks me for money or asks me for support, to just stop looking in the eyes, um, give them that, that acknowledgement, like, you exist, I see you. I would buy like $5 coffee cards for a certain coffee shop here and hand them out. And I would rarely hand out money, but I'd always offer to um, buy someone food. And so the Women's March for me wasn't just a marching. You know, I already was supporting 
um, women financially and in, in my community, health care, the certain charities and nonprofits that I volunteered for. So for me, that was, um, and I also got to put that on social media. And I think that that really helped define for other people in my life. Like Jayla has come out as um, a supporter against these types of politics. And she's come out as a supporter of the LGBTQIA community. And she's come out as this, as a very strong feminist. And then I really had been given that confidence to say those words to describe myself. And then it didn't have to mean that I was a non-Christian at all. In fact, it was really helping me define the Christianity that I already knew was in me since I was a little girl. But I had never been allowed to use these terms to describe myself. These, these terms were, you know, this is, this is wickedness, or this is an abomination, or this is carnal, or this is just a you know, God, you're authoritative by a brimstone God. And in February, I started um, someone that I had met at the film festival a year before had approached me to start dating me. And I had liked him for a long time. We had been friends. And I had really removed myself from a lot of people from that festival because a lot of them were coming out very strongly in support of this Republican presidential candidate. I'm trying so hard not to say his name, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, we know. And yeah. so I just thought I'm from, pardon? Yeah, I think everyone knows. <laughs> I really needed to remove myself, but there was yeah. there was this one person from the festival that I had connected with who never came out strongly politically. Um, he never came out seeming to be unsafe in any ways. And um, we had just maintained this beautiful friendship. And so when he approached me, he was in Colorado at the time, and I was living in eastern Canada. He, um, he said, I've I want to get to know you in a romantic way. And there are a few things. Um, the biggest thing was that he is 25 years older and he had kids that were closer to my age than he was. And this is why I had never approached him before. He'd also been married before. He was divorced. And so in my, the way that I had been raised was that um, any person who gets divorced is um, committing adultery and any person who gets remarried is also committing adultery. And, and as I was transitioning my theology and everything, I was like, ah, I don't say the word sin anymore. I don't really believe in sin. I don't think the word adultery is like a really strong word. But there was still something in me that was like, I don't know if I have a clear conscience to, to be with someone. But I also felt very strongly I needed to be with Christians, um, even though I wasn't going to church and I wasn't reading my Bible at this time. So, you know, I expressed these concerns to him. I also said to him, you know, you seem very conservative. This, um, this festival seems very conservative, the types of people, students that they have, the leaders that they have, the art, and the products that they put out seem very conservative. I'm really confused. Um, like, you know, from being friends with me for the past year and being on my Facebook, you know that I don't go to church. You know that I am a very strong feminist. You know, you know that I'm estranged from my family. Like, you just seem really conservative to want to be with me. And so we had all these conversations. He's like, you know, I'm really actually not as conservative as I present. Um, so something that I've learned now, this term code switching. So he didn't use this term at, at the time. But um, he basically that's what he was saying to me is when I'm in really conservative circles, I'll present more conservative. 
and when I'm in more liberal circles, I'll present more liberal. And so he told me, you know, I grew up in a charismatic uh, church movement. A lot of my pastors were female. I'm an egalitarian, I believe, in gender equality. Um, he told me that uh, he is, even though he has voted Republican, that he's a Republican Party voter based on the abortion issue, he did say, you know, I really do believe in the equality of the members of the LGBTQI community, as well as I believe in socialism and social services. Um, I believe immigrants should have a right to come here. This is the legacy of my country. Um, so there are really a lot of things that he said to me that I was like, okay, you know what, yeah, he's, he's more conservative than I am. I wouldn't have voted his way. I wouldn't maybe run in his circles, but in other ways, he seemed really safe for me. Um, so we kept on coming back to this divorce issue. Um, like I just, I don't know. I've turned down four other men um, that were divorced. I just don't really feel like this is right for me and my faith. Um, and I just, I'm not sure. And then he said this clincher. He said, well, my ex-wife is remarried. And it gives me the freedom to move forward in a romantic relationship. So, like, and it hit me. I was like, yeah, you know what? I do have the freedom. So we talked about a bunch of different things. He's like, do you want kids? And I was like, no, and I've never been able to find a Christian man that doesn't want kids. But I already did, I already paid my dues as a parent, man. You know, like, I I was the oldest of seven kids. I, I already did that. I changed the diapers. I taught my little sisters to sit with their legs closed so they were wearing little dresses. You know, I did, I brought, I took them in piano lessons, and I cheered for my brother in the hockey, on the hockey game. I already was a parent, and I didn't want to do that now. I really wanted to work as um, I guess what people would call a humanitarian worker. I really did believe that I needed to put my, my efforts into helping and supporting other people. And I also wanted to, to work in film and be a musician and be a film composer. And these were his dreams too. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm actually, God's called me to Hollywood. I'm moving there in a few months. Um, and this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna help people. I'm gonna minister to people and I'm a director and a producer. And I could just see all of these things, you know, in a matter of just a few weeks, like, wow, you know, God has taken me through all of these difficulties and given me all of these experiences that no one in their early 30s that I knew had. Mm. And so it gave me this freedom of like, okay, I can, I have this maybe quote unquote maturity, um, and I have these experiences to really allow me to live life with a person who's 25 years older. And I had, I had lived all over Canada and the U.S. I had been in impoverished, but I had also been in leadership. And so I, I started to see, like, my, my whole future just, just it seemed to appear with this man in just a matter of a few weeks. And he was so loving to me, and he was so supportive. And anytime that I would have a fear, and I would say to him, like, um, I think that we should keep our relationship um, quiet because if we break up, um, I don't want people to know that I was dating someone divorced and 25 years older. I don't want that flack. And he's like, yes, you know, I agree that we should keep it quiet. I, I think that I'll get some flack from my, from my side as well. And I just thought he was being supportive. But then, you know, a couple of days later, I'd come back to him and be like, oh, do you think you would get flack from your side? Like, I know I would get flack from mine. I mean, I'm, I'm the rebellious feminist daughter that, you know, left and didn't get married and had kids. And, 
and told my dad he was a criminal for being a sex abuser. I know why I don't have family, but but why would you get slack from your side? And he would say some certain things like, well, there's conservative people or there's people that um, are on my prayer team for God's call on my life. And when he said that to me, prayer team for God's call on his life, I was like, what? What, what are you talking about? And he, he asked me to be part of this prayer team. And, and at, at first it kind of sounded egotistical, a bit arrogant. So I was like, oh, you know, those Christian men, you know, they just get up on these high horses. And, but mm. we talked about it. Um, and he said God's call in his life was to go to Hollywood and to um, proselytize and evangelize these, these heathens that were there, these non-Christians that were making dirty movies and promiscuous movies. But he really, truly wanted to win an Oscar for them. And then he was going to win an Oscar, and then he was going to move to the Hill, and he was, God was going to call him to potentially be to be president of the United States of America. And so as we dated, I thought, okay, um, I'm not ready for this, but God's going to God's gonna do what he will with me. You know, so many people have told me you have this, this, this ridiculously inspirational story coming from being beaten to a pulp, you know, coming out, still keeping your faith. And I just thought, you know, like, I don't really know much about American politics. I don't really care. But God's going to equip me. God's going to give me the resources. God's going to give me people in my life that, that I can trust. And it's not like he's in the political risk right now. You know, I thought it was probably five years or maybe even 10 years down the road. And I thought I was watching Meghan Markle and Prince Harry um, date at this time. And I had mm. seen Duchess Catherine and um, Prince William and the fact that she wasn't of royal blood. And I thought, you know what, if, if they can do it and they're, you know, what we used to call them commoners, I this too. I, I will I will gradually be equipped and I'm not gonna take all of the burden from my shoulders right now. And so but we realized we had to go through an immigration process because I live in Canada and he lives in the US. And and why we didn't decide to date for two or three years is I can't even tell you. I don't even know why. It could have been that even though he's in his fifties and I was in my thirties, we could have just gotten caught up in the emotions. Um, a huge part of me now, which I'll get to, is um, I believe this is a strategic um, move on his part. So we are starting to talk marriage within three or four weeks of dating long distance. So most of our relationship was carried out on the phone. He could come and visit me. He brought me to come visit him. Um, but I think about maybe three, three and a half months into our relationship, he asked me to marry him. It was the first time I had ever had anyone ask me to marry them, and I was I was overjoyed. I had prayed for our entire relationship. Even though I wasn't going to church or reading my Bible, I had never felt so much peace, like God was leading me into this relationship. And God had led me out of relationships before. I mean, even my first relationship when I was 20 years old, when I was courting that um, API homeschooling boy, uh, and God had never given me this type of strong peace and this strong type of leading and this feeling of purpose and this feeling of, I see, I see that I can relate to people now and that I have a platform to relate to people now, that I have 
carried this pain, I've carried these burdens quietly, silently, by myself, and now all of a sudden I'm going to be catapulted to a position where I can recognize someone's pain, I can be relatable to someone's pain, and now I can do something about it. And I just felt so strongly that I was marrying someone that loved me and that would move the ends of the earth for me. He, um, he complimented me. He was a safe space for me. He brought me peace. He um, just really, he was the first Christian man to really believe in my aspirations, my career aspirations of being a film composer. I had always been told before, like, oh, you should be a model. Or, oh, you should be an actress. Or, oh, you should be an, a receptionist or an executive assistant. And all of these, not that any of those jobs are um, inappropriate or bad jobs or um, non-aspiring for any of your for anyone, for any woman or for any person. But he really saw that working behind the camera in the film industry is male-dominated industry. And my 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 man, my boyfriend at the time, just believed in what he would call God's call on my life, God's call on our life, um, and God's call on my career, and God's call on my ability to use my experiences to accomplish um, hopefully really successful humanitarian work. Mm. So um, it just it just made me feel like I have I waited this whole time. I didn't get married to any of these other boyfriends that I met in the church. I've met someone that every every area he's well respected in his community. He's um he's yeah, he was just everything that I was looking for. Wow. So that sounds all great. Um, but then obviously things changed very quickly, didn't they? There was a, you know, there was a, um, so just tell us a bit about that. You know, it's better that, obviously it's better that you say it, but um, yeah, kind of that was the kind of what, kind of the, the dream, which you felt was so right. And then, but then things happened, something happened. Um, so tell us a bit about what happened next. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did get married, and we um, we never lived together. I lived in Canada, and he lived in the U.S. We had started our immigration process before we got married. Um, we got married with an ordained pastor from a church back in Calgary. Um, we decided to, because of where we were at in our immigration process, we decided that we would get married with our vows, with homily, with God's blessing, um, but we wouldn't sign a marriage license based on what I've now found out is incorrect immigration advice given to me by, or given to um, my husband at the time uh, by the immigration lawyer. I never talked to an immigration lawyer because he had retained her. So um, uh, we, we were very in love. Everyone who met us, I think, they were, we came forward, I told my parents the day after we got married, you know, I, I married this man, I'm removing myself from you, I'm, choose, I'm joining myself to him. Um, basically, I told my dad, you know, you're, you're a criminal, and you're basically demon-possessed, and screw you, and mm. <laughs> choosing this godly man that is a way better person than you, way more kind, way more loving. And um, this is the choice I've made. I've married a divorced man. I've married a, um, a man who's 25 years older. 
and um, uh, probably about maybe two months into the relationship, I started to see that there was something I really couldn't put my finger on. I didn't know if it was a neglect or if he didn't know if it was um, just sexual deviation or something, but there was, there was things that weren't sitting right in my soul. And we would have disagreements and he would maybe start to get a little angry and then he would, he would, he would recorrect. Or um, he was living this really, really, really high-powered, um, doing lots of engagements, seeing lots of people, life. And I just wanted to be with my, my brand new husband. I just wanted to have a, you know, like a nice little walk with him. And it really was like he was in this um, position of like um, influence and power. And I would see the way that he would um, present himself when he was with people the way that he would present himself with me. I was like, there's a disconnect here. And um, there are some issues with what, it's very difficult for me to say because of the home that I grew up in, but there are some issues with domestic violence. There are some issues with um, not always asking for my consent in our marital bed. And the thing that was really important to me was that he had asked for a sexual relationship when you're dating, um, he had been sexually active from the end of his marriage while he was in Christian leadership, um, which he had expressed to me. And I knew there was lots of people in my evangelical churches that were sexually active and they just hid it from everyone. And so he had said to me that he is. But when he had asked me to have a sexual relationship with him, I said to him, nope. Um, even though I don't go to church, I don't read my Bible, my faith really means a lot to me. My walk with God means a lot to me. I'm celibate. And I believe that sex is for marriage. And so I told him at the time, uh, I there's two choices. We can you can either also choose to be celibate, which might be difficult for you, or um, we can we can break up and you can go be sexually active and then we'll just move on. And I said I'm okay with either. I told him I didn't want to break up with him, but I also didn't want to be the one always saying no. I didn't want to be pushing off his advances. So he's like, okay. I will be celibate. And he never asked me again until after we were married. But as our marriage progressed, I started to see um, there were just some difficulties in that era and things that made me really uncomfortable. There were times that I felt I didn't know if I could stay with him. There were times that I felt unsafe with him. I would reach out to my feminist group and my Christian egalitarian group. And now there's one particular situation where I felt like I was going to die that night. And I was terrified. We were in Los Angeles on a trip. And there are just, there are just times when I was like, I don't really know how to handle this. Um, I, I thought I did everything right. You know, I thought I asked him all these questions. I thought I married a well-respected, godly man. I thought I vetted him well. I thought I asked the right questions. Um... And so we would either make up or the issues would get swept under the rug. And his, his community, I think, started to really see, like, you know, Jayla really has these strong, strong beliefs. And so this past summer, an article was published about me um, that was very discouraging. But it also was trying to frame my husband at the time in this really good light and kind of frame me as this wily seductress that had gotten her claws in him to marry him and kind of pull him away from a, from a, from a faith, a godly faith. 
and I was presented as someone going to Women's March and supporting abortion and supporting the members of the LGBTQIA community. And I found out as we were, you know, married that my my husband would come home from networking events in the film community in Los Angeles when we were in New York City together and work. He would come and be like, oh, this person just came out to me. And he would be disgusted, you know, like, oh, I can't believe, you know, I have to, uh, have to, you know, work with them. I, I kept like, oh, what am I going to do now? Like, you know, what if they hit on me? And I was like, well, like, are you actually saying this? I can't believe, like, uh, this is who I'm married to. I'm so embarrassed, you know? Mm. And, and then he would say certain things, you know, he told me that he believed that the Bible had errors because that's where I had come to believe in my faith. I, I believe that that the Bible had been um, copied incorrectly or that there were misinterpretations with, in- with English and all of the um, mm. different ways that it had translated down through the, through the years and lost books and books added and words added and mistranslations from the Hebrew and the Greek. And, and he and I would talk about this. And he would say, yeah, you know, I believe that too. I believe that too. But I was copied on one of an, an email from one of his clients. And in there, he said he believes the Bible is inerrant. And so I started to get these um, these little like clues, like who did I who did I marry? And one of the things that he had said to me when he was dating is that he is an egalitarian. He believes in female equality. And he told me about some things about when he had taught at um, the festival where we had met, where he believed in. Um, uh, he had had someone come up to him and really was pushing his son, and he really wanted to work with the with the female and his female pastor, but then a year later when we were at that same festival, I overheard him tell one of my colleagues, I'm a complementarian, I believe women should submit to men. And not just that a wife should submit to her husband, but that women should submit to men. And he made that distinction. And I was starting to get all these things like, oh my goodness, did I, did I marry a liar? Did I marry someone who really just lied to get me? And so when this article came out, I was I approached my husband and I was like, okay, I I'm not ashamed of any of the choices I made. I'm not ashamed of any of the stances I have, but I also don't want to be destroying your place in your community with your conservative Christians. And I didn't even realize how solidified he was in Christian conservative Christianity until after we got married, because the way that he presented to me was that he had some conservative Christian friends and some fingers in the pie in conservative Christianity. But really, as we were married, I really started to see that was his whole, his whole um, world. Mm. And so I was like, I don't really want to say I'm going to renounce or, you know, kind of denounce anything that I believe. But as this is also my husband, and um, I want to support him. And so we had this great idea that we were going to do this joint Facebook message together and post it. But then it came up that my visa was supposed to be coming. It was supposed to be coming on August 9th. Hmm. And this was in July. So we decided we we're going to refrain from posting the Facebook video because we wanted, we didn't want any heat on me as I went to have my interview with U.S. Immigration and get my visa. Hmm. Well, um, on August 1st, uh, nine days before the visa came, he called me and he said, um, you can't marry me, and um, I wasn't a good enough Christian, and we were done. 
So I flew to see him a couple of days later, and I was like, you can't just marry someone in a religious ceremony and be with them for a year. And I sold all my belongings, you know, to come live with him. Yes, we had some problems, but I also thought we had problems because we didn't know each other super well. But I was still committed to the marriage. Um, you know, I kind of told my family to screw off. I was choosing you. I was choosing him. Um, and I was like, what can we do to, to fix this? Um, because I, and especially for me, the biggest thing was the sexual consent. You know, I really believe we were truly married and I had given myself to you as my husband and as my spouse. And he said to me, um, well, we're not really married, so I have no obligation to you. And he said, um, you're not a good enough Christian. You're bad for my spiritual reputation. God is going to make me rich and famous in Hollywood, and I can't have you ruining my reputation. I'm going to win an Oscar in Hollywood, and um, I can't, you can't withstand the spiritual battles in LA. Um, you, you can't live here. You can't, you can't be here. And um, and then he told me that God told him to, to leave me. And um, later on, he sent me two emails saying that the reason he is leaving me is because I'm bitter bitter against my dad and I need to forgive my dad and I need to get over the criminal domestic abuse that my dad did on me for 20 years so you know I really did lose my faith in my marriage because I saw what Christian patriarchy hypocrisy looks like from inside mm. I saw what the um, the worship of a, a middle aged um, white evangelical past, male pastor looks like all these people worship him they didn't ask him for his integrity they didn't ask him for his character he, he just would say something um, and uh, he used to years and years and years ago 15 years ago he used to work for folks on the family and write for adventures and odyssey and that was how he introduced himself every time and as, as soon as he would drop adventures and odyssey people would just bend over <laughs> Mm. hated him and he would be shocked when we would be walking in the streets of London or the streets of Denver and people would come up to me and they would ask for help you know people would come up to me in the Grove in LA and and they wouldn't come up we would be in groups and people would just come up just to me and they'd be like excuse me miss you know do you have some money or you know I have two kids do you have some food and I would always talk with them and always dialogue with them we would be in a car parked at a parked at a light and I'd pull down the window and be like What's your name? What's your story? Like, why why are you here? Why are you begging at night? Like, can we help you? Can we take you to a shelter? Like, and he was shocked. He like, notice these people. And I think that he saw that he could get this this power from dropping a name like Fox on the Family. But I think that he saw that I was like, I don't really care about that. And I think that that really kind of allowed him to feel that I didn't worship him and I didn't give him this respect that he thought that he deserved. Mm. And one of the things that I learned after, I've learned so many things from the end of the scene in my marriage. I've learned about narcissistic personality disorder. I've learned so much about authoritarianism and evangelicalism. Mm. Um, but one of the things I learned is this word respect. People sometimes use the word respect to say, you need to treat me like a human and that, then I will treat you like a human. But some people use the respect like, you need to treat me like I'm an authority. 
and if you don't treat me like I'm an authority, mm. then I won't treat you because you're a human. Yeah. And I really started to see after he left, like I, I am devastated to have to say this because I thought I did everything to heal myself, but I married my dad. I married someone who um, lied about his beliefs and his theology to be with a woman 25 years younger. Um, he deceived my pastor. He deceived my parents. Um, he, uh, I, I do believe partly, potentially, um, that he did it for sexual reasons. Um, part of me wants to believe that when we did our vows in June 2017, that he truly did mean to be married to me. But an agenda that he brought into the marriage was, I'm only going to be married to you if you do everything that I say. And that he didn't make me aware of that agenda that he was bringing into our marriage. Um, but he, he told me several times, and his sister, my, my former sister-in-law, also told me um, that he had no rights to me and I had no rights to him because we weren't really married. And she was actually screaming this to me on the phone, and he kept on saying this to me like he was in a trance. We're not really married. We're not really married. We're not really married. We're not really married. And the lawyers that I talked to afterwards, they said um, any consent that's given in coercion or in deception or in manipulation in the country of Canada is considered rape. Um, and I was also told that my ex-husband um, had committed immigration fraud and marital fraud. And he is an ordained pastor in a Pentecostal denomination. He is in Christian leadership in Hollywood right now. He is a director, producer, writer. Um, he is not affiliated anymore with folks on the family that I know. Um, in, in a broad sense, he doesn't write for Adventures and Odyssey. He still does have um, relationships from people in, in, um, mm. in this ministry. Um, he is very involved in the the politics that happened, like like Pence, um, Mike Pence came to uh, focus on the family in Colorado several several months ago, more than a year now. Um, mm-hmm. He's definitely very involved in that world, um, and as well, uh, he. I, I asked him. I said, "Okay, fine. Since you weren't going to divorce me, he said, you know, we were, we were true and married under God. You're going to sign this marriage license with me when I do the pain. We're going to register it in." state of California, but at the very least, I sold all of my furniture, all of my household belongings. Um, we have gotten a lease in our house in Santa Clarita. He left me homeless. He left me with no family. He left me with no belongings. Um, can you at least help me get back to Eastern Canada where I was building my career in film? And can you, at the very, very, very least, just help me move back there, even if you can't help me repurchase all these things that I did. And he said, no, I can't. And he ghosted me. I never heard from him again. Mm. Mm. That's really just, just, that's just terrible. I'm so sorry you had to experience that. That's just, there aren't really many words, really, that, that someone can say in response to something like that it's just yeah it just it shocks me that a human being would be capable of doing something like that to somebody it's just it's just it's just horrible it's evil I mean it's a, yeah. you know, you know, you know learning about narcissistic personality disorder and so many Christian leaders that have it understanding they don't have remorse they don't have a conscience 
and also understanding how they use the Bible to justify doing this. If you look at all the ways that women were mistreated in the Bible, if you look at all the ways that people, even in the New Testament, you know, the verses that talk about removing the person who's committing evil amongst yourselves, there's all these verses in the Bible that really do justify these types of, of um, ostracizing and, and um, excommunicating people. And the Bible justifies it, discarding humans and not caring for humans. And so that's why when evangelicals or for Christians, they say, oh, I'm going to vote conservative purely on the abortion issue. My first question would be for them, you know, who are, who are the other people? Who are, what are the other types of people you're supporting? If you're not supporting social services to help that child and help that mother, then you're not pro-life. Mm. And to really to be strong in that, we need to have these conversations in Christianity. We need to have these conversations out of out of. Um, post-Christianity and in the ex-evangelical communities, it isn't just that we're leaving because we're mad because someone hurt us. Hmm. It is not what these movements are about. These movements are about um, we are humans, we recognize other humans around us in our societies, in our churches, people who have left the churches, and what do we do to support each other as communities, as friends, as other church exiters? Um, this this movement, I cannot say it strongly enough, this is another reason I'm working on the documentary, is so that we can support each other in the ways that we didn't get in our Christian homes, in the ways that we did not get in our Christian marriages, in the ways that we did not get in our churches and in our ministries. Um, so one of the things I'm going to be doing this week is reaching out to the ministries and the clientele that are affiliated with my ex-husband and asking them to publicly um, to, if they would like, they can do an investigation, you know, they can, they can get, um, an ex-husband's side of the story, but really I will be sharing their side of the story, and I did meet him in a work environment, and I met him while I was working, <laughs> that's just, that's just the reality, and to let them know that this is what happened, this is my narrative, this is my experience, and to ask them to not only publicly remove themselves, um, um, engaging in ministerial duties with them, but to also put forward a call to um, any other victims my husband might have or any other victims of sexual abuse that might have occurred under their noses. Um, we need to, and, and, and to also provide safeguards and to educate themselves in how to protect um, any other potential future victims. We don't want to see this be happening. And um, it's I really do consider myself a musician. I am a musician. I've been a piano teacher for 19 years. I don't consider myself an advocate or a social worker. Or I'm not a lawyer. I'm, but I have had this experience, and I don't want another person or another woman to go through it. It's, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. My family doesn't talk to me. I am living with a friend right now. I have nothing and have no way to get back to Eastern Canada. And so... With these conversations, with this type of awareness, and you're so gracious to invite me on your podcast, um, is it isn't just it isn't it isn't merely venting, which is important as well. We have to share our stories. We have to build mm-hmm. solidarity and community. But there's also um, there's also like an action item that comes with it, right? What are we doing to support each other? Mm. I think. I think it's just really, really courageous to share your story. You know, I, it really is one of the most courageous things anyone can do. But 
this kind of story to just talk about it again, having been through it, and so recently is you know that's a really amazing thing. Um, and I know that people listening. I mean, I've kind of been inspired by it and challenged by it, and you know, I think other people will be as well. And um, yeah, um, and you know, maybe you're you are a musician, but you know, <laughs> we've all got stories to share, and I think sharing our stories it helps. I, in my experience, it helps us as well as helping other people because it helps us to kind of come to terms with our stories, you know, and um, yeah, and. As a creative person, creativity is always, I find, an outlet for pain. Like, we can get, you know, I, I journal every day. I write, I mean, I'm a writer. And writing every day has, like, been so healing for me. And I know that creativity is a really great way to get therapy. You know, it's a, it's a kind of really good way to get healing, you know. And um, and so he's talking about, about it, so... And I know that you set up a um, a GoFundMe as well to um, to get back to Canada. So just tell us a bit about a bit about that and how people can support you. For sure, thank you so much. Um, so I'm not facilitating um, any type of fundraising. I just I'm actually fairly removed from it. But my friends, um, the ones who I've met in these incredible Facebook groups. Um, they've facilitated a um, fundraiser and a GoFundMe uh, for three different reasons. Um, one, so I'm living in Western Canada right now, just living with a friend temporarily, um, and I need to be able to get back to Toronto, which is uh, where there's really like a post-production hub where I can work as a film composer and an audio engineer. Um, so I can't right now with the with the lack of funds that I have and not being um, working as a musician full time in this little small town community where I live. Mm. Um, I need to be able to get back there to Eastern Canada. Um, so that's so that's the first thing. Um, and then the second thing is repurchasing um, furniture and household items. Like I sold everything. I sold or I gave it away. Actually, mostly I gave things away to Salvation Army Goodwill. Uh, friends that had me gave away my bed, um, my couches, my blender, dishes, my pots and pans, everything. Um, and then just, um, uh, you know, trying to, trying to rebuild. So if I move there and I'm working as a freelancer, um, you know, just recognizing that I have to reestablish myself in a brand new place, uh, find a home, you know, pay for rent, pay for utilities right off the bat. That really working as a freelance musician, it's not like I'm going um, to a job and getting employment and getting a set paycheck. Um, and so there's there's a little bit of that um, that difficulty that comes with being a freelancer as well. I love it. I've worked as a freelance musician before. I've worked as a teacher and a performer and composer and singer and voice actor. And I'm really looking forward to getting back into that. I love it. I have incredible colleagues and mentors in my industry that are so supportive. Um, but really, my friends have really been just, um, believe me, first of all, believe a survivor, support a survivor. Um, and this is a tangible way that they have done uh, to try to also additionally support me. Hmm. And where can people connect? If people want to give to that, how can they 
Um, where, what is it? It's, um, how, is there a link or um, or way to way to find that online? That, that like I can put in the show notes or um, or people can just can find. Um, do you have Do you have that? Or should I just put it in the show notes? <laughs> Um, so we looked at a couple of different uh, fundraising platforms and we decided to go with GoFundMe. And it's, uh, yeah, Get so Jayla Back to Toronto, I think it's called, isn't it? It's story about my marriage and her, there's some pictures of our vows, there's some pictures of our wedding, um, just showing that the marriage did happen and did take place, um, and just uh, any, any, and I also understand, you know, there's some people that can't financially donate but any I've received so many messages that are encouraging um so many people that say that they're praying for me or people that I don't pray anymore some of my friends don't pray anymore but even just getting a little heart or you know saying mm. I'm thinking about you or I'm with you or standing with you that has been incredible and so thank you to everyone who does that um yeah yeah I think we need to get people giving to that I think that's a very worthy cause I mean, so that just to kind of round things off now, like where has all this kind of left you in terms of what you believe, how you believe, like your your kind of personal journey? I mean, kind of where you are now. Yeah. Um, obviously, I feel very disillusioned with the church. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really don't try to define my beliefs and say I'm an atheist or an agnostic, I do recognize um, the, I guess, the, is legacy the right word? I recognize the path that I've had in the church and with Christianity and with God. I'll never be able to deny that. That will always be part of my, my past and my upbringing, my experiences. Mm. Um, I, I see that there's so many things that the Bible really has justified, misogyny and genocide, and I can't support it but I'm also very grateful for for people um many of my friends you know you mentioned Richard Rohr I went to Evolving Faith in um October in Montreat in North, in North Carolina Peter N spoke there I think that there are some wonderful progressive Christians right now that are trying to help us understand really how to read the Bible um I don't read it I feel very triggered by it um but I recognize and respect other people that do um, I don't go to church. I think I feel that really at this point in my life through independent fundamental um, Baptist and growing up evangelical and then going to the evangelical church and then trying charismatic churches while married to my ex-husband, I really can't trust um, any churches ever again. I don't know that I could walk into one and really wonder um, if, you know, which is the next person that's going to use me or exploit me. Um, I do understand that, um, I, like, I still have a belief in um, the divine. I still have a belief in a certain amount of intelligent design that I see in our world. I was raised homeschooled through the Abeka homeschool program, so my education was very six-day creation and, mm. you know, white revolutionaries. So I'm, I'm really trying to educate myself right now on and science, um, but I, I will not speak as an expert on that at all. <laughs> um, where it's really left me is the importance 
of humanism and humanitarian efforts that we really truly only have each other that even when we're crying out to God um, maybe God will give us a sense of peace or maybe he'll give us a sense of comfort but really oftentimes we have tangible needs as humans and we have to be there to be able to support one another and take care of one another and even through all of this um, I still try to do that in my own life with the people that are that are in my life um, and I it is it's, I think sometimes we've been raised to have this sense of we must be humble and there's a place for that but there's also a place especially when someone has been raised in such authoritarian religion where we've been treated like we're, we're nothing especially for women we're slaves we're, we're slaves for men um, that to actually take confidence in our strength and to speak and affirm ourselves verbally mm. And so I try to do that. I try to say, this is the type of person I am. I have an incredible friend who lives um, in Eastern Canada. And she always says to me, you know, even in spite of all of this, um, you still love other people and you still love mm. And for some people, they can't do that. They don't have um, the ability or the emotional strength or the physical strength. But that's okay. I'm not trying to shame mm. anyone. I know for me that um, I I just know that I don't want to stay here for, for the rest of my life. I don't want to stay in a place of despair. I don't want to stay in a place of loneliness. I don't want to stay in a place of... One of the things that my ex-husband told me, he told me this. He didn't ask me. He told me. He said, you are not a Christian. And... You know, in the Bible, Nathan was the one who went to King David, this powerful, powerful king who was wealthy, who could have anything and everything that he wanted. Mm -hmm. But he went outside of all the things that he could have, and he decided to rape Bathsheba and then to kill and murder her husband to cover up his rape. And Nathan called David out for that. And that can be a very Christian thing to hold powerful people that are abusing their power. That can be a very Christian thing to yeah. hold people accountable. And Jesus also called out um, powers in authoritarian systems, political systems, and religious systems. He called out, in fact, he called out more religious systems than political systems. Yes. He, he said, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He called mm. out the religious people that were abusing their power and abusing the civilians' respect for their religious standing. And what did they do to Jesus? They weren't like, oh, you know what, Jesus, you know what, you're so right. I'm so sorry. Here's my forgiveness. Here's my, here's my contrite heart. They, they murdered him, like in a bloody murder. Mm. And religious people in power do not want to be held accountable. Mm. And like it or not, they're going to be. Yeah, I'm totally with you on all of that. Um, yeah, absolutely with you there. Um. Yeah, sometimes you have to leave religion and leave the church to actually find more of actually who Jesus is. That's what I've found. Um, I feel more in tune with you know the divine Jesus now. You know, and I have a spiritual community, but I wouldn't call it a church. It's more of a spiritual community. You know, not a traditional church in any way because I can't be around that kind of thing anymore myself. Um. But I found Jesus more in that than I have in than I did in in the church, especially towards the end. 
So I completely understand that. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing this. It's no, go on. No, you can say something. I was just going to say, um, actually, most of my so a lot of my online friends have have left the church. They've come from API and they've left API. They left the cult. Um, the the leader of the cult actually um, had many many counts of sexual abuse come forward to him in 2014, and there's been legal battles surrounding him since then. Um, many of my friends call themselves evangelicals or church exiters, or they are now progressive Christians. Um, so for me in my real life, um, most of my friends, in fact, I'm thinking all of them right now actually are very much Christian and they go to church. And so I recognize that I will probably, you know, potentially always have Christians in my life. And I'm very grateful for Christians that are secure enough to have me in their life. And they recognize I'm not on some crusading, um, angry uh, agenda to just say all Christians are bad all the time for every single thing that they do, but to really call out the difficulties and the struggles and the crimes that we see in churches um, and to call those out and to call them for, to, to clean up their courtrooms, to clean up their churches, to clean up their ministries, to clean up their governments, to clean up their societies, um, because every, every human life does have value. Every human life mm. has value, and every human life deserves dignity because of their value yes like 100% absolutely agree um, thank you for coming on today I really appreciate it and again so courageous of you to share your story and yeah really inspiring so thank you for thank you for sharing that with us thank you for having me um, yeah and uh, definitely go check out that fund me. I will put it in the um, the show notes so people can find it and if they want to support you. And um, yeah, that'd be great. So yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. I really hope this has been something that's challenged and inspired and made you think. Um, so um, thanks for listening, everyone. Take care, and uh, we'll talk soon. <laughs>